Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Today we're going to be talking about the 1938 Ceremony Year win for Louise Rayner for The Good Earth. Um, This is perhaps one of the most controversial wins of all time, famously because Louise Rayner is a German-born actress playing a Chinese woman. So just full-on yellow face, which is what? racist. Uh, We will be talking about that, but we also will be talking about, of course, the movie and the performances and the nominees and everything like this. But very quickly, 1938 Ceremony Year win. Best Actor went to Spencer Tracy. Uh, This was his first Oscar. And then his second was the year after. Louise Rayner became the first actress to win two consecutive Oscars and then Spencer Tracy. Uh, But she was the first. Uh, Best Supporting Actor went to Joseph Schildreth. Kraut for The Life of Emily Zola. I'm already screwing up pronunciations of names. This is just my brand and you're welcome. Best Supporting Actress went to Alice Brady for In Old Chicago. Best Director uh, went to Leo McCary for The Awful Truth and Best Picture went to The Life of Emily Zola. Uh, Today I am joined by a fellow homosexual, a friend, um, and uh, every single time that uh, you know we see each other at parties and stuff like that, we always end up talking about movies and Best Actress stuff and I just needed to have him on the podcast. It's Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi. How are you? I am good. How are you? Oh, I am so excited to talk about this groundbreaking year in film. <laughs> uh, groundbreaking for right and wrong reasons. Exactly. I mean, Louise Rayner is joining the pantheon of other extremely famous yellow face performances. Oh, God. The, uh, I know Catherine Hepburn is on that list. Yes. Uh, the very first was Mary Pickford yes. in Madame Butterfly, oh. 1915. Okay. Now, you know, <laughs> we're going to play a little trivia. Ooh. What other actress has won an Oscar for Yellowface. An actress for Yellowface. I feel like this was, was this recent? No. Supporting actress. Supporting actress for Yellowface. Oh, um, uh, I've actually never seen this movie. Um, but it's, I know it's from the 1980s and then she like ended up on like NCIS, like Miami or LA or something. You got it. You got it. What's her name? Linda Hunt. Linda Hunt. That's right. Playing Billy Kwan in the year of living dangerously, 1982. Uh, and who did she, she beat, uh, Cher for Silkwood for that, I think. It's a crime. And that was upsetting because she probably, I think everyone thought she would win that one. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and don't forget the uh, seminal performances of Emma Stone in Aloha. Oh. And the entire cast of Cloud Atlas. Oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a painful one. <laughs> oh, that was a tough one. That was a tough one. And also um, uh, Scarlett Johansson in Ghost in the Shell. That's a good one. That yeah. was... that was yeah. Well, not good, but... That, yeah, that's recent. Like, as in, like, I think... I don't know when Ghost in the Shell came out, but it's, like, less than 10 years 
So um, we still got some racism kicking around. Oh God, yeah, yeah. Uh, in this, but this this particular film, like I mean, we'll, we'll get into this. will be at the end. We'll mostly cover that, but yeah, it is pretty brutal because like the entire cast is just like white people putting on not even Asian accents, by the way. I don't no. know what Full accents they were. German ish, European ish. <laughs> uh, it's it's. Strange. It was bizarre. Confusing. It was a very uncomfortable viewing experience. <laughs> Have you seen any of these movies before? You know what? I hadn't. I treated this like a, a good old like homework assignment. Mm. Uh, so it was a lot of fun actually watching these films. I'm glad to hear that because I did not have a lot of fun watching these <laughs> movies. There were some that I enjoyed. There were some moments. Honestly, even The Good Earth, the first kind of like 45 minutes hour, I was like, okay. Like I was kind of getting into it. Um, but again, we'll get into that. So I always say, I always like to just ask my guests like why they may have picked, um, a certain year. I don't have a ton of years left. Um, but I, sometimes people just randomly pick, but is there any particular reason that you picked this year to, well, of the, the years that were left, they were mostly all about like 80, 90 years old. So I think I picked this because I am obsessed with the Oscars. I'm obsessed with just award season. Mm-hmm. So I really like all the different sort of factoids about the Oscars. And this was that instance where she had won back-to-back Oscars, right. Louise Rayner. So I was like, okay, let's let's get into this. Yeah. So, um, and I had no idea that it was for... Play- Yellow face. Yeah, I, I was. It was shocking to me. So I thought it would be really fun to, to look into the 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 very brief filmography of Louise Rayner. Yeah, the very. She actually was only um, in the industry for like three years. She hated it. She was she she was brought in by MGM to be Greta Garbo's kind of like replacement because Greta Gar- Garbo wasn't into like the Hollywood thing. Mm-hmm. And then Louise Rayner was kind of brought in to be like, well, you're replaceable. And then Louise Rayner also was not into the Hollywood thing. And then she fucked off. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there's actually a big uh, part of the reason why she won this second Oscar was because um, she was the only actress in this list that was um, part of a studio contract where all of the other actresses were freelance Mm -hmm. and they don't have the same amount of resources and money for an Oscar campaign. And they're like, Hey, let's make history with Louise Rayner. We can afford it with the campaign and we can sway the vote. And I think that's a big reason why she won two years in a row, but it is kind of funny that she broke the record and then just fucked off. Well, and barely even showed up to the ceremonies. Yeah. I read that they had to drag her out of bed. Yeah. When she won for this, uh, she was in her PJs. She was ready to have a nice, comfy night at home. And uh, I think it was the, the studio head yes. of, of MGM, Mayer, was like, no, 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 no. Took a, sent a car to her house, dragged her to the ceremony. You can actually watch her accept it on YouTube. And it's, they have to do it a few times. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the most awkward thing to watch. I mean, the Oscar ceremonies back then were just a completely different. Oh. They're nothing like they are now. Right. Um, and they have to do a few shots of her accepting the award because she, she didn't even try and attempt a speech in the first two takes. Yeah. And then her speech, I think, was literally she just said thank you and walked <laughs> off. That's I uh, I have seen this video and yeah it is a little it's a little cringe, uh, but speaking of the Oscars and how they used to be and how they were so different, let's talk about the very first recipient of 
the Best Actress Academy Award, Jenna Gaynor, in A Star Is Born, our first nominee. So this is the first uh, A Star Is Born, and actually, I think Barbara Streisand won an Oscar for like Best Original Song, but I don't actually think she was nominated for Best Actress. But Janet Gaynor um, and uh, Judy <laughs> Garland and Lady Gaga were, and I think Barbara Streisand's the other. She won an Oscar for Best Original Song, but I think that she was the only one of the four movies of these incarnations that has not been nominated for Best Actress. Um, I feel like everybody knows what this movie is about, but if you don't, very quickly, a young woman comes to Hollywood with dreams of stardom and achieves them only with the help of an alcoholic leading man whose best days are behind him. So basically the movie opens and she just decides that she's going to Hollywood and in five seconds she was there. A little jarring. She gets defeated after one afternoon of trying and then she goes to a party and uh, she's like a, a like a like a cater waiter and then runs into drunk alcoholic uh, Friedrich Marx playing Norman and then she gets famous. So basically she's like, I'm going to go be famous in Hollywood. And in like less than 20 minutes, she's famous. And just as an audience member who has seen all of the incarnations of this film, uh, this was done with too much haste to the point where it made <laughs> getting famous look so easy. Um, but because this is the 1930s and because this is the first of its kind, uh, you do have to I have to be less critical of it because up until this point, nothing like this had existed before. Um, it's funny because the Judy Garland version and this version weren't really that far apart. This was like 1937, 38, and then the Judy Garland version was like 53, 54. So it wasn't really that far apart, uh, but they're extremely different. Judy Garland's version, I'm sorry, is like the best version, way better. Um, but, you know, it was an interesting uh, v version. It's just going and seeing A Star is Born with Janet Gaynor, when you've seen all of the others and they kind of just keep getting like, like better and better and better, um, I just have to say like, good job. <laughs> but like, cause the, you, it, you created it. Good for you, girl. Um, but, you know, we, we, like we changed the recipe of Coke in the eighties and it got better. So it's like, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? It's like it, things we improve upon. So like, mm -hmm. good job, but it mm -hmm. maybe wasn't my favorite version of a star is born, but um, those are my initial thoughts. Um, Chris, what did, what did you think of a star is born? Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely the weakest of, of, of the four. Um, what I think is most interesting is it, it kind of was a radical film for back then because it, it almost, I think it is an actual critique of Hollywood and a critique of the star system and how studios literally created stars out of out of nothing. You know, there's that great scene um, where they're they're in the office and they're they're trying to think of her name and they're all just speaking her name. So they go, Vicky Lester, Vicky Lester, Vicky Lester, and they're just sort of like speaking her into existence. But the overall film was a little jarring. It it it. It, it, the tone, it, it's comedic at moments, it's madcap, it's dramatic, it feels very sort of clunky, a little episodic. Um, yeah, it doesn't have that same um, insight and flow as the, as, the, as the other film versions. Mm -hmm. um, I also couldn't figure out if it was a comedy. 
it had some really funny moments, mm-hmm. um, but then it would just wildly swing to, yep. you know, dramatic moments. I mean, let's just talk about the original Oscar slap, shall we? I mean. <laughs> that was my favorite scene. That yeah. when he comes in wasted, I'm I'm like, I've probably done this to someone. I'm triggered. Uh, because I'm what? An alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, and so I, those types of, I found Norman's character, fading star alcoholic, he's the story. He's the more interesting character. I just kind of thought that like, um, Janet Gaynor was, um, too perfect and everything just worked out for her. And, um, she just made becoming famous seem so simple and yeah you never see the work you would never actually see her in any films you right. never actually see her really acting it's yeah. just sort of assumed and i that's probably a commentary on let's you know spoiler here janet gaynor was the very first best actress winner in right. academy history it was that weird time where she actually won for three films it's the only time they did that mm-hmm. um so i think casting her in this role she was that sort of that type you know she's very tiny very slight she's got that tiny little face tiny mouth um you know she's barely five feet tall and uh, i think putting her in this role was sort of that sort of self-referential thing that this film was trying to do it's it was very meta if you notice at the beginning the whole film is bookended by stills of the actual script mm-hmm. which i thought was interesting yeah i also think uh, a thing that i found very interesting in all of these older films it's not just this year it's like all old films they love presenting the audience with reading challenges <laughs> <laughs> where like you need to understand the plot by like reading a long letter or a headline and this movie was lousy with that where it was like you would never see her like you're saying in these acting roles you never see the work she was putting into it there would just be a headline being like Vicky Lester is now the most famous person in Hollywood can you right. believe yeah. and then you'd be like okay cool like I'd like to see some of that journey and then they're like anyway back to Norman and you're like is this her movie or is this not her movie like I don't know um, the only real uh, struggle that I noticed in this movie that she had was when she was dealing with him after the whole Oscar thing and, and her sort of lifting him up. Um, and it is really just Friedrich March's movie. I mean, Jenna Gaynor being nominated for Best Actress here, I get it because she is the lead actress in the movie, um, but it's just simply not her movie. No, absolutely not. I mean, there is, you do see a a little bit of progression with her character. You know, in the beginning, she's very young, she's very naive. And then as she progresses through the movie, um, she becomes a little bit more confident. She gets a deeper voice. Her cadence is slower. But I feel that change is almost a result of her getting married and not necessarily achieving a Hollywood career. Mm-hmm. You know, the the sort of the Hollywood career that she gets in the film, it feels kind of unearned because we just don't see the work. Exactly. It seems kind of strange. Um, I mean, when he does kind of ruin her Oscar moment and she goes home with him, no. I would make him leave, and then I would be doing blow with Joan Crawford in the bathroom all night, okay? (laughs) That's what I would be doing. I'd be like, you ruined it, girl. 
Okay. But he is a classy drunk. Let's just say that. <laughs> he's always impeccably dressed. He's always in a suit. You know, he's not Bradley Cooper peeing his pants, Ooh. you know, on this on, on the stage. Oh, you God, know? that is so triggering. That, you know? That scene. Oh, that scene is just, I mean, yeah. Amazing. 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 Uh, um, also, okay, a couple, couple facts about this film. This was the first all-color film nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. Um, this is uh, widely to be considered the first Technicolor film that was a bona fide critical and box office success. Mm-hmm. Um, the Oscar that Janet Gaynor receives in the film is actually her own Oscar, uh, for which she won for her role in Seventh Heaven. And I know that there were two other films um, also that the accumulation of the three resulted in one Oscar. Um, and... Early in the film, when Esther stops at Grauman Chinese Theater to see the stars' footprints, the second one that she visits is Harold Lloyd, uh, which is which is to the right of Janet Gaynor's own prints from 1929. And in the scene, you can actually see a portion of uh, the letter R in her signature. And... Um, those are the facts about this movie that I thought were kind of interesting. Art imitating life. Yes. Um... <laughs> So, mm, I, to be honestly, I don't really have much to say else about, like, do you have anything else that you want to add before we move on? Well, the one thing I was going to say, have you ever heard of the Bechdel test? Yes. Okay. So each movie, does this movie, maybe our, our listeners don't know what the Bechdel test is. The Bechdel test is this uh, film theory that uh, measures the representation of women in film. You know, we're here to talk about women in film. So in order for a movie to pass the Bechtel test, you need to have two female characters. Usually they have to be named. And all they have to be doing is they're together, talking to one another, not about a man. Yeah, That's it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem like very a high bar to pass for female representation in film. Does this movie pass the Bechdel test? No. <laughs> you are incorrect. Really? So, if you'll remember, the true VIP of this movie is Grandma. Oh, yeah. At the beginning, she's the one that's pushing her to be a star, go out there, get out there. And then Grandma shows up at the end when she wants to quit the movie and is like, no, 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 girl, get back out there. Right. I forgot about that. Yeah, Grandma is the best. I think I wrote something about her because she was in this movie uh, that I loved. This was for Katherine Hepburn's first win, and it was called, like, Lady for a Day. And I'm pretty sure that the woman that plays her grandmother in this film... uh, Oh, God, I had this whole thing written down. But the grandmother should have gotten, like, a Best Supporting Actress nomination. Definitely. Absolutely. Oh, May Robson. I wrote this down. When Grandma comes in and gives her a reality check, I was very pleased. She's May Robson nominated for Lady for a Day. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm glad that you brought her up because forgot that. Love it. Okay, so let's move on. Let's talk about Barbara Stanwyck in Stella Dallas. So um, very quickly, a working class woman is willing to do whatever it takes to give her daughter a socially promising future. Um, This is a book that was, I think, from like 1921, 1922, and it's a story about um, the classism in America, and, um, you know, she's from a lower class, and she marries up, and how that affects her relationship with her daughter, who is has all the privilege of being in the upper class, and how her mother is so embarrassing because she's wearing a 
big flamboyant outfit. And um, I think that this particular movie, Stella Dallas, um, I had a hard time understanding because it is a bit of a product of its time in terms of what was socially embarrassing and what was socially awkward. Because sometimes the characters would be laughing and pointing and being embarrassed on the character's behalf, but I wouldn't understand the context of it. Um, so I'm just going to focus on the performance and maybe not necessarily the things like I didn't really understand because I don't think that's an issue with the movie. I just think that it's like just a commentary of like the pro like a pro it's obviously a product of its time and obviously I don't understand the context. Um, I am just going to say this long little blurb and then I will pass off the baton. So, um, so this was the first of four nominations for Barbara Stanwyck for best actress. Uh, she never won for any of her, uh, nominated performances, but she did receive an honorary Oscar, which is often called the deathbed Oscar. Um, Barbara Stanwyck under, underwent a physical transformation to play her role in which she ages from 15 or 20 years. Uh, for the first and only time in her career, she bleached her hair. In other movies where she appears blonde, she's wearing a wig, and she does don them for certain scenes here. Uh, but she wanted to use her own hair whenever possible. Wearing wings, she said would mean that I couldn't do anything with my hands, like running them through my hair. Furthermore, in her home, Stella's hair was neglected, unkempt, and that just can't be done realistically except with her own hair. Um, there's long, there's a longer whole blurb about this, but I think we get the point that it was her real hair. Those were the only points that I found interesting about this film. Uh, but just specifically talking about um, this film, I loved watching... Um, her journey and her relationship with her, her child. I also thought it was interesting that she didn't want to be a mother, but she found that she had a maternal instinct and that she leaned into it. I thought that was also interesting. I don't enjoy the trope of the tragic martyr figure that these films always frame these women for decades during this time. But of course that's on the script. That's not on the acting. Um, but I would say that of all of the, performances of this year, I would say that this was up there for these five. Um, so those are my initial thoughts. What did you, what did you think, Chris? Yeah, I actually enjoyed this movie more than I thought I would. Same. Um, it was very watchable. Mm -hmm. It was, it was really well paced. It was, you know, uh, it had a great amount of different shots. Um, I, I just liked the character study. Yes, it's a very sort of dated of its time character study. I mean, it's a tragedy, really. It's a tragedy. It's a it's a mother-daughter movie. Um, but uh, I, I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Um, and her performance in particular, um, again, is sort of uh, antithetical of, of, of women and actresses of that time. You know, she's loud, she's boisterous, she's not a wallflower and she's doing that thing where she has the opposite of a continental accent that continental accent drives me insane so she has a very working class accent throughout the whole movie um but the trope of her being this sort of fallen woman the other woman mm -hmm. you know she's constantly compared to the the first wife, right? The woman who got away, Helen, who's very, right. very conservative. Her family is very conservative. Um, 
but I really uh, I enjoyed the relationship that she had with her daughter. I really believed I saw that warmth between them. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the biggest fan of the actress who played the daughter. I, she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised. I kind of felt her performance was kind of one note throughout the whole thing. She I called just, it annoying. <laughs> I think I have that exact, yeah. <laughs> Juvenile, immature, annoying. Sickly happy. Yeah. Everything was just perfect for her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think her Oscar scene, or that sort of classic scene that you think of, is is that ending scene. Yes. Yeah. Where she's watching her daughter's wedding from the street. It's raining. It's dark. And she is sad. And then they have that great tracking shot at the end where she's walking, you know, towards the camera. The camera's moving with her. And she starts off as incredibly sad. And then she changes. And she almost looks triumphant Mm -hmm. in the end, which is tragic. Mm -hmm. I think I agree with you. That was the scene for me as well. Um, I also found her relationship between her and Ed, that sort of drunk... Can we talk about Ed? Yeah. Ed is the problem here. Ed, he, so he's the problem. Yeah. He, I mean, you rarely see Stella getting really drunk and, you know, ever clownish. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it's Ed who's barging in there. You know, he's the one that's smoking. He's pranking the people on the train. He's he makes a, a lot of molestation jokes towards Laurel. <laughs> yeah, let's not forget that. Yeah. Um, he was super drunk and annoying, but I think that he was kind of fun and interesting, and I'm sure as like an actor to play him, that would have been like a fun sort of role. But yeah, like he was kind of the thing that like ruined their um, marriage. Although one thing that I didn't think was very clear was why they separated like it was just because like she had people over and they were having a drink sometimes or because they had irreconcilable differences like there were a lot of things where it was like okay this is just happening now Mm -hmm, and you have to mm -hmm, just like accept mm -hmm, it mm -hmm, and i mm -hmm. I found that very um confusing and 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 jarring so i just kind of thought was it only because of ed um and I think there was a big middle, like the middle part of this movie dragged for me. I think the beginning is sort of interesting and the end is sort of interesting, but everything in between, which is kind of annoying and dragged. But I will say that Barbara Stanwyck at the center of the story is kind of like really the only interesting sort of compelling person because she's layered she's complicated she comes from a a rough background and then she gets rich but then you find that she actually doesn't really care about money because she never really had it but she wants the best for her daughter and again i do find it interesting the way that she didn't really want kids but then it turns out she actually loves her daughter and i think for the time for a woman to have that position would probably be very different and groundbreaking um but yeah, I do agree with you. I think that the scene is when she's like outside in the pouring rain, but it's just, they're laying it on so thick and it's so tragic and it's, oh, woe is me. But I do get that that was the point and um, I think she nailed it. I think of all the Barbara Stanwyck, I, I liked her in Double Indemnity, um, but I just don't think that there was enough there where I feel like this really showed her range dramatically and I think she was very successful. And the costumes were just fabulous that she got to wear these 
outrageous, you know, ostrich feathers and animal prints and polka dots. It was such a contrast to the really stuffy conservative look that all the other women were sort of in at the time. I thought that was really, really fun. I do think that if this movie was in color, it would have been more effective Mm -hmm. because whenever she was kind of walking through that country club and like, I don't know, maybe I just like I have a very um, different sense of what I think is embarrassing. But for me, I thought that her clothes were kind of just fun and like interesting. Like I didn't think that they were so horrific. I, but I guess yeah. like if everybody back in the day was just wearing like brown, I, I, maybe that. But so I'm just saying like maybe if the movie was in color, like those scenes would have been like a little bit more um, effective. But I maybe feel like some of the fingerprints of the Hayes Code might have played a factor in some of her costuming. Yeah, maybe. You know, she's sort of made out to just be this drunken floozy all the time, and she really doesn't appear to be that bad. I know. And if she was, can we see it? I'd like to, you know, like exactly. there are things that it's like, I wish that we saw like with Janet Gaynor and in Stars Born. It's like, I'd like to see what led to her Oscar. Why, why is she getting an Oscar? Because what movie was it? Like what role was it? Like you, you just don't see those kinds of um, things. Although this story actually does center around Barbara Stanwyck and Laurel, uh, which it, 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 where in the last one it was mostly about, um, you know, Norman. But uh, still, I do think of all the Barbara Stanwyck vehicles I've seen, this is probably like kind of up there as like one of her best. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, this th- I agree. This one was very watchable. Um, okay, do you have anything else that you want to add before we move on? Hey, Best Actress listeners, enjoying the show? Want to hear more? Access our entire catalog of Best Actress episodes from the very beginning ad-free by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bestactress. By subscribing, you will also gain access to new episodes one day earlier than their normal release day. Best Actress Podcast will always have 10 free episodes available, but with the release of a new episode, the oldest will go to Patreon, where you can access it anytime with your subscription. Come on, ladies, it's a Fritz Bernays. It's no question. Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe. Okay, this one I'm, I'm very curious what you're going to say about. So I want to talk about Greta Garbo in the movie Camille. So um, I was watching this um, video by Be Kind Rewind. I talk about it all the time in the podcast. Great channel. Who uh, And she did this year. And she talked about Louise Rayner winning um, this Oscar and mentioned that Camille is basically Moulin Rouge. And I was like, oh my God. I'm like, I didn't even make that connection. But a Parisian... Uh, courtesan must choose between the young man who loves her and the callous baron who wants her even as her own health begins to fail and uh oh god what like 80 years spoiler alert she dies uh but but uh greta garbo at this point is at like the height of her fame um and i think that this oscar they truly could have campaigned for her to win this Oscar. I've seen uh, Greta Garbo uh, in other films, and every time that I see her, I'll be honest with you, I get the persona, uh, but I I just think that she always kind of plays, um, like in Nanochka, when she was like this Russian spy, that cold 
almost like robotic delivery that's like very much her thing but she's also just like serving face like she's just stunning and I think that that sort of unemotional cold beautiful woman I'm sure was very appealing um to me I have to say Greta Garbo um I can understand why she was a huge star in the 30s I just don't really think that she has like the greatest range but I do think that this type of role was kind of good for her because she had to be a little poker face and um around people and to be very strategic with how she was communicating with people um but I don't really know if there was really a big transformation for the character in this role for me. Um, and I found this movie to be a little bit of a chore. Those are my initial thoughts. What did you think? I am... I've got a confession to make. <laughs> oh, no. I am what they called back then a purple-clad office boy or a matinee girl. Okay. These were Garbo's fans at the time, mm-hmm. called Garbo Maniacs, right? Okay. She had this whole, you know, Swifties all around her. Okay. <laughs> and I get it. I get it. I am obsessed with Greta Garbo. I am obsessed with this performance. The film, and this is a criticism with a lot of her films, a lot of her films are pretty bad, but she stands out in them because I will, yes i i get that yeah because she is doing the opposite of what almost every actress at the time was doing you know she is not hyperbolic you know she is grounded i you know she communicates so much just with her eyes right i mean she was probably the biggest silent film star from the 20s. And then she transitioned into talkies in in the 30s. So you can really see that experience and that work in those silent films. And I think it really serves her in her speaking roles because she has this, you know, really thick German-ish accent. Um, She's, you know, she's mysterious. There's this whole, like, mystique around her. Um... I, I was obsessed with it. I was immediately entranced the second she appeared on screen. But is it like a physical thing? Like as in like because of like just the way she looks or is it just because she's kind of robotic? No, it's her delivery. It's her, it's the way that she delivers her line. She is almost like an alien dropped in. Yes. Right? She yes. is unlike anyone else in the movie. You know, she speaks at a completely different register, completely different cadence. It's like she's in a different movie. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> so, that's so good. That is such a good way of putting it. That yeah. she really is like an alien. Yeah, that's but but I feel like you either love it or you don't get it. Oh, I got it. I don't. I don't get it. I don't like. I feel like I'm eliciting the gay gasp, but like I just, I don't get it. Like, okay, so a couple, couple things about this movie. So, um, this play originally opened in Paris on the second of February in 1852, um, and uh, Alexandre Dumas, uh, fils, based the character Marguerite on a woman with whom he had an affair for 11 months. She died when she was 23, and the movie inspired Milton Benjamin to write and publish a song in 1936 called I'll Love Like Robert Taylor Be My Greta Garbo. 
Even though Greta Garbo liked George Cougar, he did have one behavior on set that annoyed her. He had a habit of sitting behind the camera during the scene and mouthing the words along with the actors, lip syncing for his life, sometimes making hand and facial gestures as well. Garbo didn't waste any time telling him that she found it extremely distracting and asked him to stop. Nevertheless, she and Cougar worked remarkably well together and over the course of filming, they developed a deep respect for each other. That would also drive me fucking crazy because I have really bad ADD. Um... Talking about this performance specifically, so the reason why I found this movie to be a bit of a chore, so for the first 25 minutes of the movie, it's really just about like rich people courting each other in a very drunk, obnoxious way, and then Garbo gets a cough. Sad. Um, this story is very much between like, um, uh, not like a rags to riches, but it's like, are you going to choose rags or are you going to choose riches? But the rags in question was like, instead of a mansion, it was like a cabana. Like it wasn't really that big of a difference. Um, and I, again, like, I feel like this is going to be so offensive to you to say, but I just kind of felt like this performance was a little one note. That's, oh, I, I get it. I, I, I can see that. Um, I mean, it is, her whole performance is tethered to her relationship to, to men, right? Which was kind of funny because Greta Garbo at the time was um, fa- maybe infamously bisexual. Mm. Um, she could see that for sure. Yeah. She, um, you know, she didn't play the Hollywood game. She never, rarely did interviews, didn't do press. Um, she never married, she never had children, she liked to live alone, she didn't play the game. And I think that also added to her mystique around her, that people could almost... Because she's mysterious. Exactly, yeah. And, um, and it just made the sort of celebrity obsession around her, you know, go to a fever pitch, because mm-hmm. people could almost project themselves onto her, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, she was sort of this post-flapper uh, figure mm-hmm. and um, and she would uh, you know when she left the set for the day she would just put on like men's clothing and would just walk around New York um, you know she didn't like to you know put on a lot of makeup or you know do any of that stuff she um, and she famously um, when she was on set she never liked other people to sort of watch what she was doing doing Mm -hmm. so some of the other actors there's really good like letters um at the time sort of correspondence written about how they didn't get Greta Garbo in person they didn't really see what was what was going on it was only until that camera turned on and there was something about the celluloid that just transformed what she was doing in person it just translated perfectly on screen Mm. um it was this sort of magical quality about her. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it just added to that sort of mystique about her. Did you find that in the film there was any particular Oscar moment? I... That would have, like, landed her a nomination? You know what? I think it's just... I would probably say this the sadness. I mean, she was, she was known as sort of doing these types of roles where it was, like, sadness beauty, beauty, sadness. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that sadness is is definitely earned. Um, but in terms of an actual standout moment, maybe I can't think of one because, you know, she is sort of playing the same role throughout the whole film. Oh, I think you're maybe changing my mind. I know. I just, I keep thinking back to the movie and I, I don't really remember any like memorable... 
Um, see, the only thing that I really re- remember from this movie is when the guy the, who is like the less rich guy goes down to get candy and they give it to him in this like paper cone. And I remember being like, oh yeah, I guess they didn't have like plastics and everything like back then. And I was like, it was a better earth back then because we didn't like have constant plastic. Like I was just distracted by like the candy. Like I'm not focusing on the performance. I just, I because th- throughout the entire uh, film, I just kind of felt like, like she, she's doing a good job. I'm not saying that this is like a bad movie. I'm just saying that like, um, look at one point in um, Feud, there's an episode where they're filming the beach scene where Joan Crawford has to die on the beach, but she keeps like pulling her skin back to make herself look younger because she doesn't want to look bad on camera. And then Jack Warner, uh, played by Stanley Tucci, is like, every time you cut back to her, she keeps looking better. It's like Camille in reverse. And I never understood that reference. And then when I watched this movie, I was like, oh my God, like I'm going to finally understand the reference and honey, I do not understand this reference. Well, I, I think what now? Okay, now I have an Oscar she, moment. Like, Cause she dies. She dies, but in the end, when even when um, he's visiting her near the end, and you can see that struggle where she's trying to make herself look a little bit presentable for him. You know, she wants to, you know, be that that um, you know that character that she's been throughout the whole thing, and she just she can't do it. She just you know you know you know she's just resolute to just die you know and in that ending scene and i think it is a good death scene unlike a film we're going to be talking about shortly (laughs) Uh, i think it was again this is a character that you know is sinning and then suffers and then suffers and is sinning and again for courtesans, let's just talk about these courtesans for a minute, because again, we've got the Hayes Code over here. If these are, you know, prostitutes, sex, sex workers, they are they are wearing a lot of clothes. Yes, okay, they yes. are wearing ten petticoats. I mean, these clothes aren't coming off anytime soon. Right. So the I bows, just the I, bonnets, <laughs> flouncing. I mean, it's just yeah. <laughs> A duvet. They had like it all. (laughs) And I think that's why it was actually so much fun to watch these films because this was in the height of the Hayes Code. Mm -hmm. You know, this is when they were the 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 Hollywood censors were just on top. And it's 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 always wild to read all the different things that were not allowed to be showed on screen. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most interesting ones is you're not allowed to show childbirth even in silhouette. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and no references to venereal diseases. You couldn't say the word pregnant on television until like the mid 1970s like just the word pregnant wow joan crawford or joan crawford uh joan rivers <laughs> two very different people mm. i think uh yeah she used to talk about that she said it on tv and she like almost got canceled for saying the word pregnant well anyway do you <laughs> Look, this is a, this is like a history lesson this episode yeah. um okay well do you have anything else that you want to add to garbo's performance before we move on no, but I would like to see um, Queen Christina. Have you seen Queen Christina? No. So this is where she plays a 17th century queen of Sweden, who a real a real figure who was bisexual, maybe transgender, oh. supposed to be born a boy, supposed to be the king of Sweden, but was raised and then became the queen of Sweden. And it's sort of this really fascinating role where she's basically presenting as a man throughout the whole thing. And she is 
in her element, apparently. I would I would see her um, sort of stepping into that and succeeding because that is kind of her aura, mm-hmm. let's say. that mm-hmm. That's definitely very much her energy. Mm-hmm. Um, she never won an Oscar, though. Never did. Um, I think Ninochka was her last um, Oscar-nominated performance, and I think that she kind of just left Hollywood after that. Um, she was given an honorary Oscar, but true to form, I don't think she showed up. Mm. Oh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about uh, Irene Dunn in The Awful Truth, um, which uh, this movie actually like defined both Irene Dunn and Cary Grant's careers and comedic abilities and improvisations that actually lasted their entire careers. So this is a very significant movie in terms of their, or what would be their careers. And um, so the awful truth, a married couple file an amicable divorce, but find it harder to let go of each other than they had initially thought. And I thought this was a fun, light comedy. Um, You know, I don't really think that you have these big, um, Oscar moments, but as a professional comic, I do appreciate a comedy being singled out and being nominated. Cary Grant was not nominated, but Irene Dunn obviously was. And um, I think that her, they, they keep referring to it as, quote, screwball comedy. Um, and I love that Irene Dunn is basically in terms of like 1937 standards, like slaying as a, you know, let's say like Emma Stone and like Easy A. It's like, obviously comedy is quite changed, but this movie for the time was a huge hit, a huge comedic hit. And again, like it went on to define their um, careers. So for me, that gets like bonus points just because their Academy, like they never um, celebrate, um, you know, comedies. Except I think it was um, Ginger Rogers for Kitty Foyle. That was one of my favorite wins because it's all comedy and I, that that was my favorite but a couple things about this movie um when leo mccary received his best director oscar for this film he reportedly said that he got it for the wrong movie a clear reference to his fondness for make the way for tomorrow uh, which he made in the same year um although Cary grant tried to leave the production due to leo mccary's directorial style uh this movie saw his emergence as an a-list star and, and proponent of the onset improvisation. And according to Peter Bogdanovich, this was the first film that had a handsome leading man doing physical comedy and pratfalls. Up until this film, any slapstick that would have been relegated to the supporting roles. So to have a suave leading man star doing physical comedy, it was revolutionary. Isn't that so funny? Anytime that like a hot person does like the working class thing, they're like, oh my God, it's so amazing and revolutionary. Like I will tell a joke on Instagram, it'll get a thousand views. And then let's say like an Instagram model will say my joke or like lip sync my joke and make a reel out of it but they're shirtless and like stunning it'll go like a hundred thousand views and you're just like fuck off human attraction (laughs) i just misses i'm bitter i'm a bitter bitch i have a show called it gets bitter every third saturday of the month at comedy bar come and check it out but i am a bitter i'm a bitter bitch anyway irene dunn a lot of fun thought this movie was cute uh, Chris, what did you think? Yeah, it was a, it was a fun movie. I mean, I was surprised. I mean, maybe it's a product of time. I was surprised that it it tied for the most nominations. I think 
that year against A Star is Born, uh, probably the movie that won probably had more nominations, but it had a, a ton of nominations. Um, and I, I, it's fascinating that a lot of it was improv. Mm. That, I think, what could have played into him winning for Best Director, that he was able to get the... Because at first, the actors did not like doing this. Yeah. <laughs> it was really awkward for them on set for like the first week or two. And I, I, I remember reading that Irene wanted to drop out of the movie. You know, she hadn't done a lot of comedy, if any comedy, before this, and was not used to this director's style. Cary Grant was also very uncomfortable at the beginning. Mm. But then... You know, they got these amazing performances out of them. You know, a lot of the dialogue, obviously, was improv. So, um, and again, not a lot of performances are recognized for uh, for com- for comedy. Mm-hmm. So, I thought that was a lot of fun. I think the best part is when, let's say, her Oscar scene is when she is playing the the sister when she invites herself over suddenly near the end, and she's doing all those impressions. um what is she she's doing a whole bunch of things she's um uh i think she's trying to impersonate katherine hepburn when she's singing with the record yeah yeah um and then she's yes katherine hepburn that's it yeah 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 i i know i I, see i didn't think of katherine hepburn i immediately when i watched that but i i immediately thought oh that's Kristen wig (laughs) (laughs) wig is doing katherine hepburn (laughs) right uh, which, by the way, if if you have if anybody listening has never seen Kristen Wiig do Katherine Hepburn on the Vincent Price show on Saturday Night Live, it is such a laugh. It's so funny. She absolutely nails the voice. Yeah. Um, I yeah. It was a it was a really it was very fast paced. You know, they're they're it's you know it's a comedy about rich people um, with a twist. Rich people problems. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> They had great chemistry, you know, you could tell. And I I really like those little glances they gave each other when they were doing these sort of bits. And especially when she's playing this, you know, sister where, you know, they're given these little looks where they know they they still love each other. Mm. You know, they still really, really like each other. And they're just having they're having a lot of fun together. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it does. It feels like a play. This movie, Uh, I think it, it it was a play. Or, I mean, it, it does feel like a play, um, which I don't think is relevant at all. But um, fun fact, though, about Irene Dunn, let's just say this. She did lose to Louise Rayner, not once, but twice. Oh, really? Fun fact. So she was nominated the year before. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The year before. Um, and she famously performed in blackface Irene Dunn even though she was very well you know in showboat apparently in 1936 but Irene Dunn was if anyone should have won that year in terms of the industry coming together it would have been Irene Dunn you know she's really respected in the industry at the time she was sort of like the grand dame of film I think she has starred in the most films out of any of these women mm-hmm. um, and she's the one that played the game you know uh, in, in Hollywood Wait, so so Irene Dunn played blackface in a movie or yeah, like in Showboat? Interesting. Oh no, I'm not sure if it's the Broadway show or the movie. But there was blackface. There's blackface, Irene Dunn. So this is just kind of like an ongoing theme in uh, the 1930s: mm-hmm. is people doing mm-hmm. yellowface, mm-hmm. blackface, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. racism was the brand, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was the mm-hmm. fragrance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if like, yeah, like you, you look at all these nominees and you wonder like, oh God, like what did, 
what what racist things did these people do publicly? Yeah. yeah. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with her performance, but what do you think about a, the Best Supporting Actor nomination for Ralph Bellamy in this? Uh, I don't. I don't. Who was he again? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so he's the one that sort of plays the the other guy. Uh, he's kind of like the boring guy. He plays Dan Leeson. Oh, was the one that he the one that she like had or like didn't have an affair with? Yeah. Yeah. So, but okay, did they have an affair? I'm not sure. I I, I was so bored by him, and I I was more entertained by the dog. Okay. Yeah. Shout out to Mr. Smith, the dog. Okay? <laughs> yeah, and when he was like doing the hide and seek thing. Amazing. Yeah, that was impressive. Give him an Oscar. G- yeah, they actually have little um, animal Oscars. Actually, I can't remember what they're called, but they actually do like little animal Oscars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that's funny. I was actually I, I I wrote down to ask you if they did have an affair but I guess because you were mentioning the Hayes code maybe that's mm-hmm. why they couldn't allude maybe so they were like alluding to it mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. he was like allegedly in Florida at the beginning but then he was or Cary Grant was in Florida but then he was actually in New York so he was lying about that so you're like okay so is he having an affair are they both having an affair so then you're like okay the divorce makes sense and I just kind of enjoyed uh, the way that they kind of come back together. I think Cary Grant is very charming. And I think that he knows how to play that suave kind of like, I hate you, but I love you, like kind of guy very, very well. Um, And like you said, they have insane chemistry. Um, I just, one of my favorite comedic moments is whenever she has him kind of like behind the door in the corner and then um, the neighbor guy comes in and then, yeah, he's poking her to like, like he's literally poking the bear and then she's kind of laughing. And, you know, I, I just think, yeah, they work very, very well together. And I love to see a comedy uh, be nominated. But to be perfectly frank, I don't really know if there was like a big Oscar moment in this performance. But in terms of the thing I kept reading about this film was the 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 success of the screwball comedy and the way it defined their career. Obviously this was a huge success. And so in terms of like comedy and the way that comedy is done in films, I'm sure this film is very significant. So I appreciate that as a comedian. Um, I don't really have anything else I want to add. I mean, how about that hot sex scene at the end <laughs> as symbolized by a cuckoo clock? Yeah, I was wa- okay. Was so weird. And he was in like the pajama suit of like Ebenezer Scrooge with like a nightcap, and then he comes in, and then the yeah the clock the guy goes over to the girl side on the clock. Yeah, that was hot. Yeah, so I know I'm wet thinking about it. Um, okay, so let's talk about our winner, Louise Rayner in The Good Earth. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Although married Chinese farmers Wang and Olen initially experience success, their lives are complicated by declining fortunes and lean times, as well as the arrival of their of the beautiful young Lotus. Okay, um, so American-born Chinese actress Anime Wong desperately wanted to play the role of Olan, which <laughs> would have made sense. 
Um, being a close friend of the author, Pearl S. Bucked also helped in this. She tested for the role, but producer Irving Thalberg felt unsatisfied by it. Although sources say that the Hayes Code prohibited actors of different races from playing husband-wife couples on film, by 1934, the Production Code of America actually clarified that Miss miscegenation okay i totally said that wrong uh clause forbid only relations between black and white people so technically she could have been cast in this um talberg offered her the vamp role of lotus but a distraught anime turned it down and famously because anime wong was kind of like the only truly famous hollywood asian woman during this time so this kind of would have been her moment you know um and as i mentioned before for a second year in a row louise rayner won best actress oscar becoming the first performer to win two academy awards and the first to win two oscars in two years and originally irving talbert envisioned casting only chinese actors for this movie but gave up on the idea because there were not enough suitable chinese actors so those are the Okay, the one thing that I want to kind of mention before we get into this is obviously we're, we've acknowledged the insane racism of this movie. This is a movie about a Chinese about a Chinese family being played by white people, not even doing an Asian accent or a Chinese accent. I'm not even sure what that accent was. It was very strange, inconsistent, um, and to make Louise Rayner look Asian, they just put like dark like concealer under her eyes and they were like you're asian and then that okay so yes we're going to acknowledge that clearly this is incredibly racist and we're also going to acknowledge that yes uh this would never ever be made today um but i do want to just uh preface it by saying that clearly i i understand that and clearly this is not a film that I'm like, this is this is a great thing to watch. I'm acknowledging the racism, but I do also want to consider that this was a different time, and to them, they thought that this insane racism was acceptable. So I am going to consider Louise Rayner's performance. I'm not going to simply dismiss it because it was racist, because this was made in 1937. But I am acknowledging the racism, and I do not agree with it, but I am just saying I am going to consider the performance here. I'm not just going to completely dismiss it in terms of when we do pick who we think that the Oscars should have gone to. That being said, I will have to say that Louise Rayner being nominated for this movie is a fucking joke because I'm pretty sure she was asleep the entire movie. Like, she was like a zombie in this movie. She was like kind of half awake, half asleep, mumbling a weird accent. And uh, also, again, that whole martyr thing, like laying it on super thick and... Then, uh, you know, 80-year spoiler, but blah, 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 she does die, and um, it's so tragic, and Lotus comes in as the second wife, another person in, in yellow phase, by the way, and um, you, you hate her, she's so unlikable, and the fact that Louise Rayner was nominated for this movie, I find so confusing, because at first, this movie was actually kind of, like, interesting, like, whenever they were um, uh, growing the crops and building the the the, the land, and she, she's a slave, and you're like, okay, you have, like, a lot to work with here. But then it just kind of goes south after um, there's that revolution, which, by the way, why was she in the middle of that revolution at all? She gets trampled. 
Then she gets a bunch of jewels and they become rich. And then that's how her life becomes even more tragic. I don't get it. I don't understand this nomination. And I just thought this this performance was the sleepiest performance I've ever seen. Like physically. Um, th- that Those are my thoughts. What, what did you think, Chris? Yeah, I wrote down... Um, uh, lobotomy. Uh, <laughs> is she stoned? Um, I wrote down clonopin, <laughs> Xanax. Um, is she sleepwalking? Is she a zombie? What's going on here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> you know, we're not. I mean, we we're not gonna we, we're not gonna talk about the yellow face. Um, just the actual performance. I mean. The entire time, she has this blank stare where she's, it's either her eyes are always downcast, and when she is looking at other actors in the film, it's almost like she's looking through them and not really at them or engaging with them. Um, She doesn't have a heck of a lot of dialogue in this thing. No, she really doesn't. Um, And, um, I mean, let's just talk about that death scene at the end that is probably i laughed out loud that was probably one of the worst death scenes i think i have in cinematic history revoke her oscar take it back what was that like when she just kind of like turned to the side she literally goes forgive me and turns to the side and just flops over Um, oh, let's not forget her uncle, who I started calling Yosemite Sam, because I think at one point he forgot that he was, this is also played by a white guy, I think that he forgot that he was Asian, and he had that sort of like, what tarnation, like energy to him, and I was like, wait a minute, does he know what movie he's in right now? He, he was the most confusing, but then when him... And uh, the 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 father and uh, when Louis whenever they were having like a familial scene, a family moment, I just kept telling myself, okay, except it's yellow face, except it was a different time, and just accept like what you're watching. It was so cringe. Like you just could. They had no chemistry. It was so <laughs> awkward. This this movie also this movie is two hours and twenty fucking minutes. It is an epic. I mean, it is an epic movie. I mean, it was a big budget at the time it was a big hit it was a big hit you know they 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 didn't end up shooting the film in china they did some background shots but they actually ended up create recreating rural china in a 500 acre plot of land uh you know about a 20 minute drive outside of hollywood yeah so, i mean the studio was throwing buckets of money at this thing you know the the book was a was a big hit you know won the pulitzer prize you know the author ended up winning the nobel prize yes it is about a white woman writing about rural chinese i mean really the book is um a classic trope of american literature it's really about american farmers really and american values almost transposed onto the chinese experience it's um uh, such a strange movie, you know. It's funny the way that you say that her death scene was the most um, unconvincing of her performance and that you found it funny because I actually wrote down that she has like dead face. 
like the whole movie. So she looked like she was dead. And then the one scene where she had to play dead, she didn't. And it just wasn't convincing and it didn't work. So there's a lot of cringe, confusing stories especially just as like an actor, like character choices. Like Mm -hmm. you almost want to be like, have you met an Asian person before? Because I think that you think that this is what an Asian person is like. There is a wild interview that Turner Classic Movies does with Louise Rayner. Louise Rayner at the time is a hundred years old. I think she died a couple of weeks after they filmed this interview. And um, it's, it's, and they talk about the good earth and the preparation that she did, apparently she embedded herself with a Chinese American family in California for a little while. And, and they, you know, the interview was asking her, you know, where did this character of Olan come from? And she's like, um, she would just be observing, um, uh, like Chinese American women in, in California and how sort of like, she was almost like projecting these stereotypes onto them. They were sort of like, docile and they would be you know afraid to show emotion and they would be almost um embarrassed if they were showing too much emotion it's a it's a wild interview and i still don't really understand where she got this character from interesting and it's it is it's a very uncomfortable viewing experience watching this movie (laughs) it's just hard to um suspend um the, the 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 disbelief that you're watching these white people play the play these yeah, Chinese characters, but it's, then also her her kids in the movie were like actually Chinese. They were great. The sons that the the, the two actors that played her sons were amazing. Yeah. Um. And and at first it's funny. So the original producer of this film, uh, Thalberg, who died, you know, I think at 37, 36 years old, he was one of the heads of MGM. He wanted to shoot the movie in China. He wanted to use. Chinese actors and even Pearl S. Buck said, you know, use use Chinese actors, and it's it obviously they didn't end up going in that direction. Um, I do think that um, when she comes into the movie and she's um, a, she, she marries uh, this guy, but like she's essentially like sold to him, and then they kind of create the farm and and the way that you see her doing the work. See, honestly, the first like 30, 40 minutes of the movie, I was like, okay, like I can kind of just accept this and get into this. But then it just kind of stays in that same, like you're saying, like that zombie dead face for the entire film. Like whether she was tired or starving or upset that her husband is marrying this Lotus character or... Which, by the way, she was so funny to identify because she was the only other, like, yellow-faced person in the movie. And you're like, oh, my God, um, are you two going to get together? Well, how are you hinting at the audience that that might be a thing? Um, Whether she was dying, whether she was even just happy. Like, it was just the same blank kind of, like, (laughs) slack-jawed, like, expression. With the odd exception of that scene where she's teaching her children how to beg, and then she does some of the begging, and it's, like, so over the top. I mean, it's almost, it's a caricature. It's it's almost, she's just overacting it. It almost feels like a parody. And just the accent. I, I don't know what that accent was. That was also unforgivable. (laughs) Now, I've got a question for you. Okay. Is this category fraud? 
Do you agree that this is a lead performance or a supporting performance? I believe this is a lead performance in that she's technically the lead actress. But it's so, because on this podcast, I talk about category fraud all the time. For me, my my favorite category fraud is Talia Shire in Rocky. She's in the movie for like literally 12 minutes and she got Best Actress nomination. But technically, she's the lead actress or Viola Davis in Fences. You know, um, for this, for this time, I would say that this is Best Actress enough. I guess, but yes, technically, yeah. But why do you think this is more like supporting? No, ultimately, I do agree agree with you in that. Yes, she is the primary female character, but really, this is Wang's story, and yes. even the book is framed that way. That this is the sort of trajectory of you know a poor farmer who goes through this you know horrible famine and the revolution, and then eventually you know becomes you know a rich uh, landowner. Yeah. Um. Okay, well, do you have anything else that you would like to add before we select who we think the Oscars should have gone to? I don't think so. It's just, it's one of those films that really, would you, now going back, would, would this be a film that would be subject to a remake? Would this work if they were to just, you know, redo the whole thing, let's do it authentically, would this be a film that would be worthy of a remake? I mean, at the center of it, it's kind of like about the irrepressible human spirit and how you overcome adversity. Like if you go from being a slave to accidentally becoming a rich person by finding jewels on the ground, that was a kind of confusing scene, but whatever. That was the, that was the least of my worries during this film. <laughs> it was I, a very chaotic scene. Yeah, apparently just, they used thousands of extras in that scene too. I, mean, I, just, I was I didn't know why why was she there? I didn't understand. But um, I would I would say that this performance by Louise Rayner is um, uh, unforgivable <laughs> in in many ways. Uh, not just not just because of not just because of the racism, but just because it's a bad. It's a bad performance. It's, it's a bad, bad it's performance. Terrible. It's terrible. Um, but um, you know they're they're redoing uh the color purple this year, where it's like an all black cast and a black director, and um, uh, I think they're redoing the Joy Luck Club. So like. I think that if they were to redo this film, I mean, there's certainly enough in here to make it a compelling story, but it is about farming. And I don't know how like hot people are into farming right now. <laughs> um, but it can always, sure. And now we're talking about authorship. Anyway, if we're really going to tell a story about, you know, this particular period of Chinese history, maybe let's use, oh, a Chinese author. Well, wasn't Memoirs of a Geisha written by a white guy? Sure was. Okay, so... Yeah. okay uh lots to unpack there but okay i think that uh the time has come for us to select who we think that the oscar should have gone to so chris um you are my guest of honor please reveal who you select first and the best actress for the 10th academy awards goes to Greta Garbo. Okay, why? I am biased. I am a Garbo maniac. I am a convert. I totally buy into this performance. I think that this role is a culmination of her entire cinematic career. If we're going to give someone a career Oscar, this is the time to do it. 
Um, no one else could have done the role that, that the way that she does this performance. I mean, no other actress you watch any of these other four actresses. Uh, she's just operating, in my opinion, on another level in terms of this performance and in terms of the caliber and all of the other actresses at the time. I mean, it's just, I'm obsessed with her. I love it. Okay. That's, that's so funny. Cause I was like, I don't get it. Uh, <laughs> but I love that. That's, that's your journey. I love that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I think that the Oscar should have gone to. Barbara Stanwyck for Stella Dallas. I've seen um, Barbara Stanwyck in Ball of Fire and in Double Indemnity, and they're always very good performances, but there's just not enough there for me. But I found that this particular year, I wouldn't really say that any of these nominees really necessarily stood out to me, uh, but I really found the fact that Louise Rayner won an Oscar for that sleepy performance to be just confusing and I really just think it was a way of MGM to be like okay Greta Garbo you're leaving Hollywood we'll get another Garbo and I think that this was uh, just like a studio move um, and I think it's hilarious that Louise Rayner just like fucked off Hollywood as well after three years um, but I do think that Barbara Stanwyck and Stella Dallas um, the, the material is kind of like here and there but like that's not her fault she didn't write the book and I think that she's giving a wonderful performance. Uh, I love seeing her journey from beginning to end. And, you know, the whole tragic martyr thing. It's such a trope. But she really slays those scenes. And honestly, of all of these films, when I keep thinking back to, like, the one scene that I remember is her standing outside in the rain. And just because of the fact that I really remember that and I, I, um, I've always wanted more from her from the other films. And I think that I got to see more from her in this film. I would give it to Barbara. Oh, they, okay. I got really passionate there and punched my table. Um, uh, because of those reasons, I would give it to Barbara Stanwyck in Stella Dallas. Okay. Well, we did it. Thank you so much, Chris, for, uh, doing this podcast and, uh, discussing this with me. And, um, I hope that you have a wonderful, uh, Christmas and a wonderful life and maybe we'll have you back again. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Yay. Okay. Bye. Did you enjoy the show? Want to hear more episodes? Visit patreon.com slash best actress to access our entire catalog of episodes ad free with your subscription. Subscribers also get access to new episodes one day earlier than everyone else. Oh my god. Go to patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe, and I will see you all at Howard's Inn.